You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Well, good morning. You guys good? Today is our fifth and final Sunday in our series called Living Grateful. And on that note, all of our kids are going back to school this week. My son is booing me now. I forgot it was fifth Sunday when they they were going to be in here, and that joke was going to go over so much better. It's all right. No, I love the beginning of the school year. I, I love this time of year. It always takes me back. It takes me back to my years as a teacher, but it always takes me back to my own years growing up, going to school. Uh, and one of the most vivid memories that I have uh, of my elementary school years in particular centers around lunchtime, right? Arguably like every kid's favorite part of the school day, rivaled only by recess, you know? Uh, and in my elementary school memories, what stands out to me about lunchtime was, was the sizing up of other kids' lunches. You, remember, you know how this works, right? The, and this social dynamic would, would happen in like three phases. Phase one was inventory. You look around the table and you just see like, okay, who brought what, you know, and therefore who maybe has the best lunch. And you, you know exactly how this goes, right? You open up your lunchbox, you're super eager to see what was packed for you, only to feel a bit more disappointment than gratitude, which is honestly just par for the course, right? Like kids that age, like there's, you can't please them, so you just you pack them whatever you can. Um, no judgment. But you look in your lunchbox, and it's a ham sandwich again. Or it's celery sticks again. Or apple slices again, right? You, you always kind of feel this. Um, and so again, you're, you're, you're taking inventory though. Who has something better? And by better, you just mean different, right? It may not actually be better food, but it's different than what you're used to getting. And then once, once that inventory has been completed, we move on to phase two, which is comparison. You, you kind of, you're, you're eating what you feel like you can, but all along, you're really starting to take careful, oh, so-and-so's not eating this, but it looks really delicious. And so-and-so's, they're, they're, oh, that, that's gone. They're eating that thing, right? Um, and, and during this, this phase of comparison is when the feelings of disappointment and covetousness set in. It's when we really learn how to long for something that someone else has, right? And try to scheme ways that we can get hold of that. And so we stew in those feelings a little bit. We're eating what we can, but all the while we're, we're watching, right? And pretty quickly though, we move on to phase three, the fun part, trading, right? You're like, well, I know the thing that I really don't want to eat, and -and so-and-so's not eating that. So, you know, this is where our bartering skills get honed at a a young, young age. Uh, And, and, you know, for me, when I was growing up, most of the time, me and my friends kind of had like the same basic staples of our lunch, right? So mine was PB&J, right? PB&J. I ate so much PB&J, and I asked for it, so, so I'm not like dissing my mom here or anything, but because she's in the room, I knew this was happening. So, so I asked for PB&J. I ate so much PB&J in elementary school that I then swore it off for a good like 25 years. Wouldn't touch it um, un, un, until I became a dad, and then I rediscovered PB&J and all their sweet and savory and cost-effective goodness. I had one this week. 
I had one this week. It was awesome. Um, they didn't know this either, but Reese bought us some like fancy pastries for staff meeting on Tuesday. And what got handed to me? It was like a PB and J croissant muffin. I was like, I guess I'm talking about PB and J on Sunday. That's how God speaks to me through food. So I would bring PB and J, but then I had a couple other friends. Who, who would bring their like, oh, not again lunches, right? We're quite different than mine. Um, one of my best friends, Eusebio, he would show up every day with uh, a Ziploc baggie full of pepperoni. Just straight pepperoni, like greasy, delicious looking pepperoni. And I was you know, like, that's awesome. Then I had this other friend, Pete. I would look over at Pete. And I, I kid you, I am not making this up, Okay. Pete would bring, all the time, a squid sandwich. Yeah, it's, it's just like what it sounds like. It, was like. it was like a slice of bread, some mayo, another slice of bread with mayo, and in between was like these little floppy gray squids that looked like they'd only been boiled for safety. <laughs> like, that's it. And he'd pull that out, and he wouldn't often even eat it as a sandwich. He would just pull the little squids out. Now, I'll let you guess which friend I was eager to trade with and which one made me feel grateful for my PB&J. Now, those, those, those elementary school dynamics, like they're a little funny now as adults, but if we're honest, we haven't always really grown that much further beyond them. That instead of being grateful for whatever we have, we're often disappointed in what we have. We're often maybe ashamed to bring what we have out into public for other people to see, for them to size them up. And we're always hoping that we might trade up with someone in some kind of way. It's, it's easy for us to feel like whatever we have to bring to the table is just, it's not enough. It's not yummy enough. It's not exciting enough. It's not successful enough. It's not new enough. It's not novel enough. It's not creative enough. It's not impressive enough. It's not whatever enough. And so what seems trivial in like the schoolroom cafeteria feels a lot more consequential in real life in, in our relationships with people or, or in our work that we do in the world or even in our church. And so today, as we, as we kind of wrap up talking about living grateful, I've got a message for you guys called The Grateful God. We're going to talk about the grateful God because gratitude, like all good things, begins in the heart of God. And then the more that we see God as grateful, then the more we ourselves will be inclined to be grateful, I think. So we're going to be reading a little bit of Bible. Before we do that, will you guys pray with me? We're going to ask the Spirit of God to speak to us. God, we come to you humbly. We come to you honestly, just as we are today, with whatever weights we're carrying, whatever baggage is weighing us down, wherever exciting things have us thinking on ahead into the future, like slip and slide kickball. That's all I can think about now. God, we present ourselves to you. And we ask you by your scriptures today, Lord, would you speak to us? open up our eyes to see new things and our ears to hear new things and our hearts to understand new things. Thank you that through the Bible we can see you more clearly and our, our, ourselves more clearly. 
So let us hear you. I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly today than my own. Amen. Uh, We're going to be reading a story today in John chapter 6. If you've been around the Bible a little bit, you've probably heard this story. There's a couple of different um, instances of this, and different gospel writers take a version of this. Uh, This is John 6, 1 through 13. Uh, And John writes this in verse 1. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, for those of you who are confused. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the things he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. And the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with small five barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And what I want to do, I want to just take a, a look at four little moments, four little phrases in this story, right? So to, to get the picture, Jesus is on the move with his disciples, right? He had, he had just healed a Roman's official son who was dying. Uh, he just healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, if you remember that story, and on the Sabbath, no less. So he's riling up the religious officials. And, and now they cross over the sea. They're kind of trying to get out of town from where all this hullabaloo is going on that he started. And they're, they're getting across to the far other side of the sea. And, and but, but these people... These crowds of people who are just amazed at these things that they've just seen or heard about, they start following him. And and Jesus sees them coming, right? I imagine he sees a bunch of them coming in boats. Maybe he sees other ones that are like running around the side of the lake. He sees them coming. And so he tosses out this idea of feeding them all lunch, right? And so he mentions this to Philip. Philip does some quick math and points out the obvious. It would take more than half year's wages for each one just to have a bite, which is to say, it's a very kind way of saying to Jesus, that's crazy talk, right? It's just not possible, Jesus. And so another disciple, Andrew, hears this. And and he says, he joins in the conversation by saying, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. Now, we don't know this for certain, right? Because we can't read tone of voice in the text and, and John doesn't give us like any kind of insights. But my suspicion is that Andrew said this a little bit sarcastically, <laughs> right? Like a half year's wages for not even enough food for real? Like, yeah, that's crazy. Here's a kid's lunchbox, LOL, you know? <laughs> Jesus is like, oh man. 
So I'm not so certain that, that Andrew's actually positing this as a plausible solution for the problem at hand. Of course, Jesus takes his suggestion, right? It's like, okay. And so what he gets, like this is, this is a very modest and meager lunch, probably only intended to feed that one kid, probably minimally sufficient to even sustain that kid for the entire day, but whoever packed his lunch for him, like they probably just did the best they could, right? Here's like five little tiny barley loaves and a couple fish, off you go, little Tobias. And, and fish and bread, these were like, these were just basic staples of the diet of the time. It was, this was like the PB&J of the day. Nobody would be impressed with this, right? Nobody's gonna wanna trade for this around the lunch table. Unless, unless you're the kid with the squid sandwich. <laughs> Maybe you're like, dude, let's trade. You're going to eat that. Now, but I think it's important. Like, don't miss the significance of the insignificance of this kid's lunch. It apparently didn't matter much to Jesus at all that this lunch was so meager and so common. He was nonplussed. In fact, and this is just my suspicion, but, but given the option between this simple schoolboy's lunch and some five-course meal from like the bougiest hipster restaurant in Jerusalem, Jesus still would have taken this kid's lunch. He still would have opted for the insignificant thing. So here's this boy, five small barley loaves, two fish, and, and Andrew goes on and asks the obvious question, but how far will they go among so many? And it's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is clearly not very far. Probably not even as far as that single boy, right? Like how, how long are five barley loaves and two little fish gonna sustain a growing boy? Every parent knows that's not gonna work, right? Kitchen's closed, Tobias, no, it's not, I'm still hungry, right? We try to close our kitchen after dinner. It doesn't work because we have a 13-year-old, right? The kitchen's open until whenever. That's just the way it works. Now, when, when he says like so many, again, what he's referring to is 5,000 men. That's what John describes here. And, and the Greek term is important to just name this, I think. The Greek term here is gender-specific. Only men were typically numbered when they're like looking out at a crowd of people. The whole crowd, including women and children, some scholars suggest may have been four times that number. It's up to 20,000 people. Now, side note, don't get too upset and bothered by patriarchy and sexism in the Bible because it's there. It's in there. I'm not gonna try to tell you that it's not. Right? We're not gonna do some theological gymnastics to say that it's not. It's in there, and this is simply because the authors were products of their time. The people living these stories, they were products of their times. What we have in the Bible is real people in real space and time, in real cultures, living within their own baggage and their, their own imperfections and things like this, trying to tell their story of how they experience and are trying to journey with God. And most of these cultures are heavily patriarchal. They just were. So like, that's just what you're going to get. Point being, let us, not, let us be wise enough to avoid the temptation to thinking that that means that God is sexist. He is not. 
end of side note. So here we are. This is the math. This is the math that, that Andrew's doing. Five plus two divided by 1,000 equals one impossible meal. It's just not going to work. And this is the crucial question for us. It's exactly the words that Andrew asks. How far will my loaves and fishes go among so many? How far will my loaves and fishes go among so many? The answer is the same, not very far. My, my inadequacy to meet the needs of the world around me, like, to be honest, guys, it just feels super disappointing. It often feels embarrassing. It can, it can feel crippling. It can feel really hard some days to get out of bed when you're like, how am I going to supposed to be meeting all, like, all these needs that are around me? I just, I just can't. I can't. So I won't. But this isn't bad news. I know that feels like bad news, but I'm preaching the gospel to you right now. It feels bad before it feels good. What I think is that it's all just loaves and fishes. Even our very best, it's all just loaves and fishes. In Mark's telling of this story, Mark has the same story. And the way he tells it, is, is that Jesus, seeing this crowd of people, he asked the disciples, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. He asked them to take inventory. And when they found out, they came back and they said, five and two fish. And the truth is, is we would like to think that we have more than a few loaves. We'd like to think that what we bring to the table is more than two fish. Something more substantial than that. Right? We've, we've, got, we've got serious gifts and passions and talents to bring to the table. We've got years of experience under our belt. We've got degrees on our walls and likes and shares on our social accounts. We've got impressive resumes and recommendations from people in high places. We are networked. We mean something. That's not bad stuff. But I got to tell you, the longer I follow Jesus... And frankly, the longer I do ministry, the more I suspect that it's really all just loaves and fishes. Like maybe, maybe we never actually graduate beyond having very little to offer the God of the universe. Maybe we never build up a significant amount of anything in our lives that will heal the woes of the world. And maybe Jesus never really expects us to have a very impressive answer when he says, so how much do you have? Take an inventory, get back to me. Like after all, he already knows the like humiliatingly small response we're going to have. But he's more than okay with that. Maybe he's not expecting any more than what we have to humbly offer. Jesus seems to delight in using our little as the raw material for miracles. Right after the feeding of these 20,000 people, 
in Mark's gospel. This happens in John 2, but the dialogue's different. Uh, the disciples head out on the boat again, and they're caught in this violent storm out on the lake, right? Jesus appears to them in the storm, walking out on the water. They're kind of scared. And they cried out, is what Mark writes. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Because who does that? Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were, this is what Mark writes, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Like what just happened? They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And of course, I, I, I would prefer that Jesus would preach to me a gospel of sufficiency to my ego, right? Like, Roger, you're good enough and smart enough and gosh darn it, people like you. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. That voice is not Jesus. <laughs> I want him to make me feel adequately supplied at all times. So where someone's like, how are we gonna feed these 5,000 people? I'm like, I can do it. But he doesn't. His gospel goes deeper. His gospel goes wider. And there's something terribly insecure in me about that. But maybe that's just a clue that I have not yet understood about the loaves. Because it's all just loaves and fishes. Now back to the story in John. So Jesus asked Philip, how are we gonna feed these 20,000 people? He points out the terrible math. Andrew points out the kid with the lunchbox. And then in verse 11, the first little bit, verse A, 11A, Jesus then took the loaves. We'll pause. Jesus took the loaves. It's important to pause and think carefully about this word took because there's, there's more than one way to take something, especially a little kid's lunch. <laughs> Option one, we all know this, you can be a bully and steal it. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. If you have, there will be opportunity to repent at the end of the service. I'm sure, I'm sure none of you that have ever, ever had that happen to you, there will also be healing prayer after the service. But you know how this works, right? Your hands reach out and you snatch it away. And now, just do I even say this? I'll say it. Like, surely Jesus did not do that. It feels, a bit, it feels a bit silly to even say this, but I feel like we still have to in church sometimes. Jesus is not a bully. Jesus is not a bully. He never was and he never will be. That's not how he came into the world the first time. That's not how he went about doing his earthly ministry. And that's not how he's going to return. If your theology is telling you that Jesus is going to return like a bully, you've got some bad theology. He is kind and gentle. As Matthew says, quoting Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a small boy's lunch he will not steal. That's the Roger version. So you can be a bully and steal it. Second, you can trade for it. We've already talked about this, right? You see a better lunch, 
Betrayed, man. Now, this usually means that you're giving away your least favorite item, hoping for, for something that's yummier. There's no indication that Jesus gave anything to this kid in return, at least not on the front end. So you can be a bully and steal it. You can trade for it. Or three, you, you can just simply and humbly ask for it, which is what I believe that Jesus did. Like, can you see it? Can you picture this in your mind? If you've watched any of The Chosen, I think this makes it a lot easier, right? I've not seen, I don't know if the scene's in The Chosen. This is how it would happen in The Chosen if I was running that. Right? Like, Jesus stoops down, so he's like eye to eye with this little boy holding his little lunchbox. It's metal, it's rusted. It's got like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it. He's eye to eye with his boy, gives a faint little smile. He gestures towards the boy's lunchbox. That's a delicious looking lunch you have there. Yes, Rabbi, it is. Your Ema must have packed up for you. She must love you a whole lot. The boy gets kind of sheepish and like nods a little bit. I was wondering, Jesus goes on, would you give your lunch to me? I want to show you something. And the boy pauses and he looks at his lunch. He looks back at Jesus, looks at his lunch, <laughs> looks back at Jesus, feels his tummy rumble a little bit. And then she says, okay, Rabbi. And Jesus, without breaking eye contact with him, just reaches out his hand and just receives it. Jesus takes by receiving. This is how Jesus takes a little boy's lunch. This is how Jesus takes anything from you or me like this. He waits for us to offer it and he receives it. So then he, he stands back up straight, looks down at the little boy, gives him a quick little wink, like turns towards the crowd. And then the rest of verse 11, and then he gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated. So it's like as much as anybody wanted. It's a buffet. Now, here's where we get to the gratitude. Watch carefully. Jesus gave Thanks. He, he gives thanks. He expresses gratitude for what? For a, a meager and clearly inadequate lunch. And I think we ought to take this at face value, that Jesus was genuinely thankful. This was not feigned gratitude. This was not like your grandma gives you socks for Christmas. And you're like, thanks, grandma. I think Jesus really meant this. So he gives thanks for this lunch. To whom does Jesus give thanks, is the question. In the text, John is not explicitly clear. He does not say, which I think means that we are invited to freely use our imaginations a bit. We can do this with the Bible, guys. It's okay. 
I think there's three possibilities. Three possibilities of who Jesus gives thanks to. The first one, and perhaps the most obvious, is Jesus was grateful to God, right? And this might be the first one we assume, right? And I don't think, I don't think this is wrong. In no way should we rule that out. Uh, in Jewish culture, the head of the household would customarily give thanks to God before the meal and after the meal again, which is when I prefer to give thanks, right? Oh, thanks. That was good. And so it's quite possible this is what Jesus was doing. Gave thanks to God. But let's not rush on ahead and assume that that was it. Possibility number two is that Jesus was grateful to the boy. Remember, he, he took the loaves. He received the loaves from the boy and gave thanks to who? Why not the little boy? Surely this little boy was thanked, right? I mean, honestly, hey, would you, would you give your lunch to me? I want to show you something. Look at the lunch. Look at Jesus. Look at the lunch. Look at Jesus. Tummy grumble. Okay. And he receives it. And still eye to eye, thank you, little Tobias. I think that's his name. Now, clearly, I cannot tell you with certainty that this is how it happened. But given all that I have read of Jesus in the scriptures and all that I have come to know of Jesus personally through his indwelt Holy Spirit, I simply cannot fathom a reality in which this did not happen. Of course, Jesus thanked the boy directly. So maybe, maybe Jesus was thankful to God. Maybe he was thankful to the boy. Third possibility is that Jesus was grateful to the boy's mom. Yeah, his ima. Yeah, maybe some other caregiver, right? Whoever packed his lunchbox, right? Could have been his dad, could have been like his grandma who was living with them, could have been his older sister, whatever. Well, let's just say it was this boy's mom. Now, since there were 5,000 men there, and nearly four times as many other total, like women and children, it's highly likely that this boy's mom was there too. Highly likely. Not like she packed him a lunch and he's like, I'm gonna go check out this rabbi by the lake. She's like, okay, don't forget your lunch. You know? Maybe it was like a whole family affair. So Jesus, just in the same way that Jesus must have thanked that little boy, if his mother was there present too, I, I, I can't imagine that Jesus would look up and not say, thank you. Even if she wasn't there, she at least deserves, deserves indirect thanks because everyone knows how kids make it to school with lunches or not, sadly, as the case often is. Someone packs it for them. And so I'd go far as to say this. I think that the real overlooked hero of Jesus feeding these 20,000 people in one sitting is the boy's mom. I think she's the real unsung hero. She, she packed this meager lunch, having no inkling or imagination that it might fill any more than her son's little belly. And so the, the behind the scenes, no name people who simply do the faithful day in, day out work of packing kids lunches, all that budgeting and planning and shopping and cleanup that goes into it are the unsung heroes of the kingdom of God. All you parents that are doing this this week, 
This is what's happening. Because it turns out, guys, I, don't, I really think this is true. Jesus doesn't really need our big dreams or our fantastic plans of spreading his ministry. All he needs is our simple faithfulness. Every small and insignificant and humdrum and ignored thing that we do is potentially the seed of something truly beautiful and life-giving when placed into the hands of Jesus. That meager lunch that you pack for your kid that's barely enough to nourish the growth that is happening, that looks super lame next to the super mom lunches that the other kids bring, that, that lunch that you had no intention of being shared with anyone else, that lunch might be the beginning of a miracle. In the final analysis, it's all just loaves and fishes. And Jesus is so very thankful for them. Have you ever heard God express gratitude to you? Like, think about it. Have you ever felt like God has said thank you for something? Do you ever even think about God being grateful? Does it sound strange to hear someone say, God is a grateful God? You know, I've, I've read a lot of books, including a lot of like nerdy, really dry, like systematic theologies. And there's all these lists of the attributes of God, right? God is omnipresent. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's just, he's kind, he's loving, he's merciful. He's all these things. He's never grateful, that, that one never makes the cut in all that I've read. But I think if grateful is not on our list of our understanding of who God is and what his character is, I think we're missing something. A couple quick reasons why. One, gratitude is not unidirectional. What I mean is that do we assume that gratitude can only flow one way, like from the, the, the lower in the hierarchy to the higher person in the hierarchy? The weaker can only thank the stronger. Like, does that actually work in our own relationships? Again, many of you are parents and you are over your children in some way, right? And in many ways, they are lower than you in the family hierarchy or they have weaker influence than you do in the family or they're subservient to your intentions for the family, et cetera, et cetera. But do you not express gratitude to your kids? If you feel like you don't, well, then maybe that's what you needed to hear today. If you do, of course you do. Which of you parents would not thank your daughter for taking out the trash? Or which of you parents would not thank your son for helping to bring in the groceries? To paraphrase Jesus, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give thanks to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give thanks to those who deserve it? Of course he will. God is not a demanding deity who only expresses approval over those mere mortals who have done their obedience to him. He's an appreciative parent who expresses gratitude to his children for what they do and love. Gratitude is multidirectional, flows back and forth between God and us, between us and other people. Two, our capacity for gratitude must come from our creator. 
Our capacity for gratitude must come from our creator. If God is not grateful, then that means that we can do something that God cannot do. Maybe that's like too deep of a philosophical thought for you this early on a Sunday morning. I think it's true. Our capacity to say thank you is yet another way in which we reflect the image of the God who says thank you. Which leads to number three. The reason that we get this from God is because, and the reason why God is grateful is because Jesus is what God has to say. That's how author Brad Jerzak puts it. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the ultimate incarnation of the communication of God. So when we hear Jesus say, thank you, we ought to hear God saying, thank you. In verse 12, the last thing that Jesus says here is he says, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. The dark side of kids' lunches, of course, is the waste. I, I, just kind of, I just kind of stopped asking my kids if they ate their whole lunch because I want to keep on liking them. <laughs> like we humans, we easily waste what we're not thankful for. And when we protect something and, and not waste something, it communicates that we are grateful for it. And so it is with God. God will not waste what he values. God will not waste what he is grateful for. Do you ever feel like what little you have just kind of gets broken up and scattered around on the ground? You ever feel that way? Like, man, I brought my best. I gave all that I had and it's just broken up in little bits, tossed on the ground like it's nothing. Well, then hear the grateful God declare over you Gather up the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Gather up the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. It's interesting that John, maybe you caught this earlier, John knew what he was going to do. I mean, Jesus knew what he was going to do, right? What Jesus intended for that crowd, God intends to be done for the whole world. What Jesus intended for that crowd, God intends for the whole world. Gather up the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. Why don't you guys stand up with me? I'm gonna invite you just for a moment to be present to the Lord. And just tune yourself into the presence of God. If it's helpful for you to close your eyes, close your eyes. You don't have to. Take a deep breath and just let yourself be aware of Jesus' presence to you right now. Just as if you were that little boy in that crowd, he sees you. Just like if you were Philip 
or Andrew. Jesus sees you. He's not losing you in the crowd. And I'm gonna ask you again the question that Jesus asked the disciples in Mark. And I want you to just hear Jesus asking you this question right now. How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? And you can think about that concretely, like like what assets or gifts or strengths do you bring to the world? What comes to mind? Can you name them? Just name them. And then ask yourself and be honest with Jesus. Like in what way do those loaves that you have to bring, how do they perhaps feel inadequate? How do they feel insignificant? How do they feel powerless to do much around you? And and when I say that, resist the temptation to judge them. It's not what I'm inviting you to do. We're not judging them. We're just naming them and being honest in how we feel like they're maybe not enough. And just hold them. If it's helpful, you can hold out your hands and pretend like in front of you, like just here they are, I'm holding these things. And then hear Jesus ask you a second question. Okay. Will you give them to me? Will you give them to me? Give them over to Jesus. Again, if it's helpful, you can extend your hands and as a physical act of prayer, say, yes, Jesus, here you go. Okay, Rabbi. You can have my little lunch. And now hear Jesus say to you, thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful for your simple loaves and fishes. I am so grateful for you.